0: Alienate and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I'm excited about today's guest. He is Stephen Post. He's a philosopher, a public speaker, professor of preventative medicine, and best selling author of many books. He's taught at University of Chicago Medical School, Fordham University. Marymont Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and Stony Brook University School of Medicine. He's an elected fellow of the Hastings Center and a senior scholar of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown University. Post is the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care and Bioethics at Stony Brook University School of Medicine in the Department of Preventative Medicine. He's an elected member of both the College of Physicians of Philadelphia and the New York Academy of Medicine. Stephen, welcome to Conversations. Thank you, Michael. It's a delight. It is a delight. As I said before, I just loved your book. I devoured it. We were talking earlier about your use of the third person narrative with a new twist calling yourself the boy throughout the book and you obviously are over 50 now or somewhere in that neighborhood and so talk about your early spiritual experience and how you ended up with the name the boy that you used in the book
1: well the boy it's a very simple answer i i ran cross country at st paul's school in new hampshire i had a wonderful cross-country coach, Senor Ordonez, and he called all of us the boy something. Well, my brother had been there a couple of years earlier, so he was the boy post. And in order to avoid redundancy, I was just, to make it easy, I was the boy. And so people referred to me in general as the boy when I was up there for those four years, and I rather Enjoyed it and it did work out because it's nice to write a book when you can refer to yourself in that term.
0: Yeah, it was very captivating. It pulled me in. And as you continued to get older, still being the boy, there was something like infinite about the boy. And, and you're talking about infinite mind beyond space and time and how it creates the universe. Where did that come from at such an early age? The longing for this spiritual connection and the quest for learning le- that you had
1: i was always like that uh, in this book you'll see pictures of me as a six-year-old kid leaning against a tree in a kind of meditational state i'm not sure i can explain this but uh, certainly when i was 15 i was up at saint paul's uh, i had been attracted to it because it was a good place to study spirituality and religions Uh, I got off Long Island, which was another good thing, I guess, at the time. But uh, I had this um, amazing dream uh, at that age. Uh, a dream uh, repeatedly for about a year and a half. I think I probably dreamed this six times. And it was very amazing for me. It was just an image of gray, silver mist uh, surrounding me. I'm walking. It's in the west somewhere. I just know that intuitively, and then I look and I see a boy, a young man who's younger, uh, who's older than I am by just a few years. It looks like he's got stringy blonde hair, and he's leaning out on a ledge. And then the the silver and the gray disappears. Uh, Blue comes into the scene, and I hear the voice of a blue angel, a feminine voice, and it says. If you save him, you too shall live. So then the the dream is over. And I would ponder it uh, in the wooden pews of the old chapel at St. Paul's. I wrote a paper about it in sacred studies class. Uh, And it was something that I discussed with people because I wanted to take seriously the idea that somehow maybe in this crazy materialistic world that there is a sense in which a higher being, an infinite mind, is connected with our minds and trying to trying to get through to us. Uh, so this uh, captivated my sacred studies teacher, uh, Rod Wells, a- and Rod had been a, he was a graduate of Yale Divinity School. So um, one day he took me to Yale Div School, I was uh, 16 at the time, uh, to the class of a psychologist of religion uh, named uh, Professor James Diddy's, And I spoke with uh, a group of young Divinity School students uh, about the dream, and they asked me what I thought it meant. And and for me, it was all Emersonian. It was all uh, the oversoul. It was all this kind of Ayurvedic notion that our minds are not simply material, that they're not derived from matter and cells and brain, at least entirely, but rather they have a transcendent dimension And um, this all sounds Jungian, but it also has lots of great philosophical roots. Uh, In the beginning uh, uh, was the word, right? So before space and time, there was this infinite mind that called all things into being and still sustains all things uh, and still uh, is with us in some inner light that we can become attentive to. Um, So I had this wonderful experience at Yale Dibb School. And I, uh, I just went on uh, in life. I'm I mean, curious mentioned... about the questions. Before we go on, I'm curious about the things. These
0: were people who were college students. You were still in high school. I'm curious about how the listening was received there by these
1: divinity students at Yale. Well, they, 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 they were done with college, or they were studying for their ministerial degrees. Uh-huh. And they decided yeah. that they were going to do uh, careers as uh, ministers. Uh it was very interesting I, I you know for example, they asked me uh how did I get along with people at St Paul's? Did I have friends um, And I assured them that I did, and that uh when I had that dream and those experiences of dreams, uh it wasn't like I'd been out uh working off my demerits, uh raking leaves in the hot sun or uh, getting dyspepsia from bad hot dogs. I was, yeah, I was a good student. I was an A student. Uh, or smoking I was, uh, dope. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't actually. So I stayed away from that, and, and, which, is, which is fascinating. So they actually, I mentioned that. I said, you know, uh, no, I don't drink. They asked me that question. And, uh, uh, and I explained why I didn't, uh, that I, I felt very content with my mind being uh, uh, just pure and appreciating it as a gift. I always thought about the gift of the mind. Uh, so those things didn't interest me. And they were all, of course, Episcopalians. And they said, all Episcopalians drink, especially martinis. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and, and, and I, didn't Jesus drink? Uh, well, uh, uh, so it was just a nice back and forth. I said I didn't condemn anybody for, for drinking some wine, but that even Jesus eventually stopped drinking toward the end. Um, but I've lived my whole life, actually, uh, with this sense of the, the, the gift of, of, of having a mind, of being able to connect uh, spiritually and in scholarly methods of, of effort and, and learning. I just treasure the mind because to me the mind is where we can meet with the divine. Stephen, I'm
0: curious uh, what you're saying. Many people would say that your soul came into you. So I'd love you to... Do- Define for us your sense of soul, or that you're playing out an ancestral unfolding in your own life what are what are your thoughts about that
1: you know that may that may well be true i I have to limit myself because i'm very much uh experiential in what I want to say or can say about these matters i mean the The fact of the matter is that uh that summer of my 17th year, I was destined for Swarthmore, but I had decided that I really didn't want to go to college, and there was a reason for that. So my so Rod Wells had gotten me a job in the Bronx tutoring. And I love that. I'd done some of it in New Hampshire with mainly French Canadian kids from some of the poorer areas. It's very meaningful to me. But my mom and dad insisted that I couldn't do this. They said (laughs) Dangerous. And it wasn't that dangerous, but it got pretty nasty because uh, they said that they wouldn't cover Swarthmore if I insisted on being a tutor in this part of the Bronx. So I finally relented and I said, okay, so dad, what am I going to do? Now, my dad was the president of W.J. Sloan's department store on Fifth Avenue. And uh, he knew all of the lamp manufacturers, the furniture makers around greater New York. And he said, I've got it. I'll get you a job in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory. (laughs) And, oh, my goodness. So I spent two weeks cutting cardboard between, and I say this with great respect and affection, between two very large 300-pound Italian women with a lot of smoking going on. And I was just cutting cardboard. It was stiflingly hot. There was no air conditioning. And to go to work, by the way, I was driving my dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which had seen some better days, and which I know he had purchased just to look good when he drove us up to New Hampshire to St. Paul's. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I would drive this to to, to work, and they had their own family car, uh, another car. And then one Friday night, I just, I said, okay, I I think I'm at the end of my wits. Uh, I drove out to West Hampton Beach, which is kind of a, youth hangout on uh, eastern long island i had some friends there from school about 11 at night i had been reading admittedly you know siddhartha and uh, other such writings and I said, my, yeah, I said yeah i yeah <laughs> carmac oh yeah and, and i was a big fan of whitman and uh-huh. he, because whitman was in huntington where the where the whitman mall is and and his birthplace so um i i at 11 at night i just started driving west because the dream had been in the west and i wasn't sure about the dream i had no sense that it was a certainty but i just felt somehow that that was part of my destiny so i drove down the sunrise highway i drove through the midtown tunnel i drove up the fdr drive i drove across the george washington bridge i had never been west of the george washington bridge i saw a sign it said route 80 west <laughs> the only other option was 95 south but there was no south in the dream. So I just went west. About five in the morning, I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania, actually um, on Route 80 near uh, the Lewisburg exit. Uh, And cars in those days had generators. And when the generators broke, all the power was out immediately. So I was able to get to the side of the road just by luck or synchronicity. And I didn't know what to do. I looked around me. There were miles and miles of wheat fields. There were no telephone booths. Now, importantly, for the five or 10 minutes before this event occurred, I was having second thoughts. I thought, you know, if I just do a U-turn across the midway and go back, no one will ever know about this, and my reputation will be spared. But, but now the car was dead, and I thought somehow, you know, this is an act of God. So. <laughs> I took a piece of paper out from the glove compartment, and with a pencil, I wrote a note, which, well, this is both a confessional thing, but it's the truth, you know. And it said, to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655 from his son, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> and I had my classical guitar. I played a lot of Villalobos and Granados, and I had 50 bucks to my name. I stuck my thumb out, and a big, huge, white truck uh, came by. A country and Western-style fellow named Gary opened the door, and he said, come on in here, young man, and where we're going. And he took me all the way to Chicago. Uh, he was a bit of a conversation partner. And, and then eventually um, I got all the way out to San Francisco in a the, in the band full of some hippie kids. But the interesting thing is that on Route 80, now some of your listeners, they may be familiar with Nebraska or not, but there's Omaha and then there's Lincoln, right? So we got to Lincoln and one of the hippie girls said to me, you really should call your mom. And I said, okay. So we pulled over and collect. I called my mom. And she said, oh, my God, you're alive. And I said, yeah, Mom, I'm, I'm fine. Did you get the car? And uh, she said, yeah, we got the car. We got the note. Uh, Dad had it towed back to Long Island. Uh, it's in the shop. And uh, uh, we kind of get the message that uh, maybe we should have let you do some tutoring. You know, I'm paraphrasing now. But, but uh, uh, I said, Mom, that's okay. And then she said, oh, you mean we can, we can call off the Pinkertons? The Pinkertons are detectives, right? They go back to the Civil War era. So I said, Mom, you called the Pinkertons. Why did you do that? (laughs) So I went out to the the Bay Area, to Chenery Street, which is in the Mission District. And I played a lot of Villalobos and Hispanic restaurants over the summer with living with my cousin George, who'd done a couple of tours of duty in Vietnam. And then uh, I also was part of the Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist uh, chanting community on Market and Genery, and loved that. It really was deepening for me. Uh, I drew a bad draft number, so I had to make a phone call to the people at Reed College because I had gotten in there, but I had turned them down to go to Swarthmore. Now I, I needed someplace to go, and they were receptive. They understood my plight, so they said, well, come on up. So about 7 in the morning, and this is a really powerful part of the story, about 7 in the morning, I met at the temple with all my Buddhist friends and with George. Um, I had a gohonzong, which is a Buddhist scroll, which kind of brings you good luck and has some Japanese writing on it about a mystery and uni- unified mind and, 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 and the depth of, 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 the, of the universe. So I took the Market Street bus and I got off at uh, Golden Gate Park. And I walked across the park, and that's where you walk up and you get on the bridge. Now, it's pretty early in the morning, and it's silvery, and it's misty, and it's gray, and I couldn't see really more than about four feet in front of me. Uh, so I'm walking on the left side of the bridge, and I get to the middle of the bridge. There's a walkway there. I look to my left, and I hear a little something, and I, I see uh, a youth who's standing outside the, the waist-high uh, fence, and he's kind of leaning out. And I thought, boy, that's really strange because it reminds me of my dream. So I looked over and very quietly and peacefully, I asked him, "Are you thinking about jumping?" And he responded pretty aggressively, "Yeah, what is it to you?" And so forth. And he even quoted Macbeth, uh, you know, "Life is an empty nothingness." I, I I told him he did a good job. He did a better job than my. Piers had at St. Paul's when they did Macbeth in Memorial Hall because he was standing out there on a ledge ready to jump, so it sounded pretty serious. (laughs) And and so, um, but I said, let me just tell you that you know I think I may have come all the way out here just to have this encounter with you. And he just you know he used some bad language and he thought this was insane. And and I told him, but wait a minute, let me tell you. So I told him the story. I told him the story about the dream. I told him about the argument with my mom and dad and that sort of pushed me but the dream kind of pulled me so there was a push and a pull simultaneously i told them about leaving the gray mercedes on route 80 near the lewisburg exit i told them about getting across the country even calling mom collect of course and i said i think i'm really here to connect with you and he just could not believe it uh so he said, uh, there's nothing you can do. And I, I I said to him, well, wait a minute, I've got something. So I pulled this Gajon Zone out of my backpack. And I said, this Gajon Zone is going to change your life. <laughs> I said, I'm not supposed to say that, but it's really life changing. It'll bring you luck all of your years. So he said, I don't believe it. And I explained it just a little bit. I, I, I unrolled it a little bit. And I explained some of the some of the Japanese uh, symbols. And he he said, well, this is absolutely crazy. I said, look, if you step over this railing, which was about waist high, just come over here. I will give this to you. I will explain it all and we'll talk. So he came across the railing and I unscrolled this whole thing and I explained it to him. And I said, look, I'm going to give this to you, but there's one condition. You have to walk down the bridge toward the park. You have to walk across the park. I gave him a little money. You have to get the Market Street bus to Chenery Street. And then you have to take this note, which this was the second note I'd written, (laughs) uh, (laughs) to Cousin George. This was George Lamont was his name. This is Harry. Please take care of him. Let him sleep on the same spot on your floor where I slept and bring him down to the uh, temple so that he can meet everybody, including Gus, who was this Japanese American who'd been interned for a while during World War II, uh, who had been a mentor to me that summer. And uh, it turns out that uh, Harry did that. He actually did that. And, and, and I, he, I learned this when I went back in, at Thanksgiving time. He'd gotten it together. and He'd gone home to North Carolina. So as I was walking down the bridge, now we're heading north toward Oregon, and I'm going to hitchhike to read on the Pacific Coast Highway, uh, I just feel somehow the incredible uncanny nature of this event. And you couldn't explain it by probabilities, by calculations and statistics. It was just so completely uncaused. But on the other hand, it was totally caused but well, you know, Jung called this uncaused causality that somehow some things are are made to happen through this infinite mind. And I so felt you had like- this dream you had
0: this dream, Stephen, back when you were what, fifteen or earlier and 15. you had it multiple times and the the line that came to you was, If you save him, you too shall live.
1: Right. So now what did you make of this? When well, you <laughs> I str- I struggled to interpret it a little bit and 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 I I thought well maybe I'll maybe the whole message is that by this event I'll always understand that it's good to be good that if you live by the golden rule you will also flourish even just as an unintended byproduct it may not be that you're counting reciprocal actions but somehow there's a, a, a depth and a love and a spirituality about just being there for people. But I, I had some questions about what that being the whole story. So that, that night I wound up in Oregon, uh, Reed is a liberal arts college in the suburbs of, of Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't go into some of the amazing people I met there like Robert Bly and it's a long, long list. But uh, that January, Uh, Now, it doesn't snow in Oregon, but it rains a lot, and sometimes it gets pretty cold, and the rain gets slushy and almost icy. So I was in the coffee shop. Uh, It was about nine at night, West Coast time. This guy came bounding through the door. He had a leather bike jacket on. He looked kind of wild-eyed, electric. He had hair that was ranging out in the air, and I said, uh, he said, he said, does anybody want to go for a ride on my Harley Davidson? And I was a real fool. I had no executive function operating in my mind at the time. <laughs> uh, as, you know, I was just writing notes on Route 80. And so I said, I'll go for a ride. So I went out and I got on this motorcycle. It was a Harley Davidson shovel head, which was like the fastest bike you could have at the time. And this guy, uh, who it turned out was clearly loaded, he went streaking through Portland. He went through every red light, every stop sign. He was doing about 150 in literally a minute and a half. Then he went on the Pacific Coast Highway. He went south for an hour at 100. He had 180, 190, and I thought I was dead. I was just petrified. I was at times uh, 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 welling up in tears, and and I said, "Please stop. Bring me back." He wouldn't do it. He was just loud and screaming and laughing into the air. And then he did this almost evil Knievel-like turn around the midway. And he drove back same speed and he dropped me off exactly where he picked me up in front of the Reed coffee shop. So now at this point, I was staggering and I managed to walk across this bridge over a ravine that brings you to where the dormitories are. Now, I walked across the threshold. I never in my college days, answered the payphone on the wall. It just wasn't something I did, although I had given my mother the number just so she'd have it. And as I walked into the door, I, I, through the door, I felt kind of, you know, pushed a little bit toward the phone, and it was ringing as I walked across the threshold. So I picked it up. I said, hello, and lo and behold, it was my mother. Now, she says, Steve, you're alive. She said, I just woke up. It's Now notice, it's two o'clock in the morning in New York. i just woken up. I had this incredible premonition. I was sweating. I thought you were dead. And I said, Mom, that's incredible because I almost was. And I went on to tell her the story about uh, Andy, who was the motorcyclist in my incredibly harrowing adventure down the Pacific Coast Highway. And and from that time on, actually, my mom and I were pretty well connected because we understood that there was something of this infinite mind that connects us all, even though we might have disagreements and tensions in life, uh, growing up and so forth, which are natural. But there was still this kind of oneness. So There's I thought well, demonstration uh, yeah. in there of number one
0: non-locality. You're right. uh, again in a different place. Right. Uh, you saw San Francisco, and then your mom saw you, and but also outside of time, you, yes. you, you know, the, the event occurred, the dream occurred at 15 and you're now 17 or 18, something like that, yes. uh, exactly. and then your mom picks up something that's happening. So what, what do you make of, of that in terms of yes. you know, your own philosophy and your own
1: sense of the world? Well, it, it was totally formative, totally. Yeah. Because, you know, let's recognize she was 3,000 miles away And you've got the Rocky Mountains and lots of other natural barriers. So it's not as though we can explain this in terms of some sort of electromagnetic transmission. I mean, it would have to be a heck of a transmission. No, it really gets to the fact that a certain aspect of our mind is connected with this universal mind, and that premonitions, intuitions, dreams, and these kinds of things that we tend to dismiss in our modern materialistic world that uh, they actually can have a depth and a value and a significance and they they hint they, they 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 tell us with a wink and a whisper that we are we are more connected than we know uh, and and so all my life I felt that and this even you know by the way I mean I, I went into the sciences and i I did immunology and pediatric endocrinology and a different set of things. But but I eventually wound up leaving all that behind. And I went where all Blue Angel dreamers have to go. Okay. I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School to study with Mersha Eliade and Joseph oh, wow. Kidd, who was a visiting professor. And Chick sent me high, who was writing Flow. And so so I basically studied... Um, world religions and metaphysics, and and um, and I and people would ask me, "So where are you from?" And I would say, "Well, uh, I guess I'm from Babylon, Long Island, which is where I was originally from." But I said, "Really, I'm just a Route 80 guy." And I had the opportunity of sitting in the bottom of Swift Hall with Eliade and uh, and Campbell, and I told them the Blue wow. Angel dream. And at that time. Uh, Campbell, who was very dapper, he always wore either a bow tie, you know, or a nice straight tie. And he had. A-
0: yeah, I did a class with him and and uh, Schwartz, uh, Jack Schwartz, together oh. at okay. med, med med school a long time ago. I I remember it well. And Ali Adi, it was really focused from a shamanic perspective. So you got into some things that normally people in divinity wouldn't go into.
1: Yeah, Well, well, yeah, so, so they were real contrasts because Eliade was very old at the time and he had all these puffs of hair coming out from his ears. And, and so I told him the story and, and Campbell said, synchronicity, not luck. And then Eliade asked me, so is it all synchronicity? Which is a very thoughtful question. I mean, how much of what goes on is somehow set up by this infinite mind in ways that are more cherishing than we might imagine? And I talked with them. I said, well, you know, I think some things are and some things aren't. We had some conversations about that, but those were good days because um, uh, now I was studying with these wonderful people and it was shaping my life uh, in ways that were very surprising. But for those who I knew who were close to me, who I could trust, you know, I was always willing to tell them about the Mercedes, about the notes, (laughs) Mm -hmm. about heading out West. I mean, I had to get confident with people to do that. You know, now I'm a little older and I've been tenured at various universities and I've written all these. You
0: have to watch what you say now in public, eh? (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not so concerned about it. You know, kids are, kids are growing up and doing well. You know, I've been married 37 years. So I figure that, uh, you know, all, all, all's good. But I've always wanted to tell the story because I, so when I when I tell the story, I used to actually be telling these stories very quietly at little moments, just to be mirthful with students in classes. I, Chicago, Case Western, Ann Arbor, Stony Brook—they'll they'll all tell you that. And um, I do it because I want them to feel free to express some of the things that they've experienced that don't quite fit a materialistic paradigm. Mm-hmm. And that's really why I, I wrote this book. I mean, I, I, about 2000, Sir John Templeton and I were great friends and he, he had me start this institute for the, for the study of unlimited love uh, and which he thought was ultimate reality. He was an incredible human being and my greatest mentor. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Sir John, he was so special. Um, uh, you know, we had funded all these projects and, and I was trying to bring science. I mean, it's a really funny story, which I didn't actually get to, and I'm not sure I will. But, but uh, uh, I got a fax from Sir John, who was down in Lyford. He said, "We need to study, with all the methods of science, the greatest human asset, which is kindness and love." But then he quickly said, "But not just human love. The love that made humans,
0: mm. right?
1: Because he was somewhat skeptical about human nature and." we reverse our love. Sometimes our love is unreliable. Sometimes it's myopic. Uh, uh, sometimes it turns to hate. Uh, Even and, I'm,
0: I'm curious about now, you know, there's a, a real merging of the metaphysical and the physics, particularly from field theory and the idea of, uh, uh, of course, Sheldrake's morphogenic field, but also the larger field of consciousness that we seem to be both being fed by and are feeding. What are your thoughts around uh, that and how does that fit into your idea of infinite
1: mind? Well, it's identical as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. Now, yeah. you know, others might debate that, uh, but uh, uh, I, I think we're talking about the same thing about five years ago I was invited to the Indian National Institute for Advanced Studies, which is in, um, um, in uh, uh, not, not Lahore, it's in, uh, 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 what's the name of the city where I'm forgetting. I'm blanking. Anyway, it's in a city in India. Um, And um, I was giving a talk on Alzheimer's disease because I've written a lot about Alzheimer's. uh, And I was saying that, you know, Just because someone is deeply forgetful doesn't mean they don't have consciousness. It doesn't mean they don't have dignity. Um, They'll have episodes where they have more or less memory of their life narrative, of who they are, and so forth. And you can pick that up if you notice it, if you're attentive. But don't ever write them off as somehow being life unworthy of life. They have consciousness. And they can experience things for all, I said, deeply forgetful to a degree.
0: Uh, and, and I, lo- I love your work, by the way. On It's an area that I'm really interested in. I um, had a number of family members go through it. I have some fear of myself going going that direction at 74. But I also was able to teach movement work to Alzheimer's people. And I always had one playlist, you know, it was mostly big band, Benny Goodman, those kinds of things. But it literally would bring light into their eyes and, and movement. Even if they were almost catatonic, you'd see a foot or a hand moving like that. And then they did that video.
1: I think Music was, in memory, Alive Inside. Yeah. yeah. It so, was just fantastic. Yeah. And so I, I work uh, uh, with Cohen. He lives in Mineola, New York, uh-huh. here, and we've done a lot of things together. But that's so important. They come back into themselves, stimulated by music that's personalized and that they connect with from an earlier time in their lives. But what's amazing? So, so, so I was giving this talk on 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 the dignity and the consciousness of deeply forgetful people, and His Holiness came in just because he he sometimes. Comes into the institute just out of the blue, mm-hmm. and he put his hand down on the table and he said, "Yes, there's no reason to think that the consciousness of someone who is deeply forgetful is less valuable than the consciousness of someone who is memory intact." Roughly, mm-hmm. and 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 so I've always been someone who looked upon the dignity of deeply forgetful people as a special. Challenge now. If you're if you if you're just a materialist, you think okay, they may have some moments when their self identity comes back, but those are just little fragments of neurons. The other way of looking at it is that underneath this communicative breakdown, there is still a soul. One of the things that I noticed
0: with my aunt, who was pretty much like my mother before she got really bad, we were taking a walk, and I, I told her that I had had a massage the night before. And she went, oh, how could you let someone touch you like that? So I started exploring and it seemed to be there was a lot of people that had not necessarily repressed sexuality, but a concern about touch and and being connected in that way. I haven't ever found any research around that. I've mentioned it to several people in that field. And no one has talked about that. Are you familiar with any of the things that that helped to bring on the Alzheimer's?
1: Well, that's a whole complicated field. But, you know, if you go back 10, 12 years ago, no respectable neuroscientist thought that stress contributed to the onset of Alzheimer's or any progressive dementia caused by other conditions as well. Now it's universal. I I never meet a neurologist who doesn't think that stress, in addition to age itself, in addition perhaps just some susceptibility genes and so forth, that stress is a factor. And if you go back uh, again two decades ago, everybody knew that protracted stress would slow wound healing by about 20%. It would cause metabolites to convert into fatty acids so you get some vasculature problems. That was certainly the case. But then people realized that stress caused hippocampal atrophy, that part of the brain that's so central for laying down of memories, it shrinks down a little bit under conditions of stress hormones over the period of time of years. And that's a very uh, significant factor. And so it gives a little little value to the notion of uh, going with the flow. And there was a great study at Rush Presbyterian in Chicago a few years ago which demonstrated the single strongest predictor of whether an older adult will maintain their memory capacity and cognition into late old age is whether they have a strong purpose in life. Mm-hmm. So if you have yeah. a purpose in life, which is you know, to help and to make a difference in the, in the lives of others typically, it'll
0: help you out. I mean, stress is an interesting word because it's kind of like sick, You know, you could be sick and have a cold or terminal cancer. Stress doesn't really say much. It's that we don't have the capacity to deal with what we're confronting at the time, the mental, emotional, and physical capacity to hold it. So I'm always curious when we come up with these theories based on something that's Mm -hmm. very subjective. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, I, I, um, it's an area that's very interesting. So much more to talk about. Chagall's Blue Angel. Okay, Chagall. So I got you. Got to bring in.
1: I guess, uh, so 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 uh, absolutely amazing. You know, I I took a job. I I I uh, I'd been in um, uh, in Chicago. Then I was in Michigan for two years, and I took a job at the Fordham Marymount campus teaching philosophy, of all things, because i have mainly been doing medical school stuff. But I thought, okay, I'll do something sort of purely humanistic for a while. And uh, I was in my office. I had an office mate by the name of Gabriel Gomez, who was from Bangladesh, and uh, his name was Gomez because his ancestors had been converted by uh, Spanish missionaries or some such thing. And, I, and he was very, very good. He was actually a distinguished historian of world religions. Hmm. And, and, and we talked a lot. And, and Gabe asked me when I first got there, so what got you into this field of, of religious studies and metaphysics? I said, well, Gabe, to be honest with you, when I was 15, uh, I was up in New Hampshire, and I had this blue angel dream. I'm not a fanatic. I, you know, I, I use my mind. I'm disciplined. But I had this dream. And And it always captivated me, and I thought it was meaningful. And so then he said, okay, you have to get out of this office and you have to walk around the reservoir and you have to go to Peconico Hills. It's about a mile walk to the old Rockefeller estate where there's this church called the the Union Church. And go inside, and that's where you will find the Chagall Good Samaritan window. So this, you know... uh, Nelson Rockefeller was a big lover of modern art. He had hired Chagall to do the windows, including, by the way, the prophets and a Matisse window in this particular incredible building. It's the only place in the world where you can sit in a pew and, and, and put your, your elbow on, on, the, on the stained glass window of Chagall. So there's this incredible blue angel uh, window. It's the, it's, it's the size of the wall. And it's got symbols from all the world's religions. And this got me so interested. I said. Wow, so what's going on with Chagall? And then I started to study Chagall. And it turns out, when he was 17, he lived in a little uh, town in Russia. And his dad, who was a Hasidic Jew, uh, had a factory, He pickled herring. And he wanted Chagall to follow suit. He wanted to take over the factory. (laughs) as bad as a lampshade factory as far as I'm concerned. So, so Chagall ran away. I was, I, 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 He wrote about this actually in 1920 in a book called My Life when he was reflecting back on 1901 and 1902 when he was actually in St. Petersburg as a runaway. So he was in St. Petersburg. He was living on the streets. He was sketching. He had no idea that he could actually paint uh, uh, in color, but he was a pretty good sketcher. And uh, he would sell sketches. And then one night, He's in the alley. He's sleeping on a big old dirty pillow, uh, and there's another guy next to him who's a laborer. And Chagall suddenly—he's not sure if he's awake or asleep—the whole alleyway fills up with blue light, and he's completely astonished. And then he sees these white angel wings above it, and then it all ascends, leaving blue behind. He wrote about this so beautifully in his in his first autobiographical book in my life and it's all there it's actually it's the only part of the of why, of God and love on Ruedi that has a little bit of quoting from someone else you know uh, for the most part but uh, uh, that next day he did his first painting and it's called The Apparition mm-hmm. and if you look at it it's white and it's it's a it's it's, it's a blue angel
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the rest of this guy's life He painted blue angels. Sometimes he did red angels falling from the sky because he was involved in the pogroms and he was seeing the the Nazis persecuting the Jews and so forth. So he varied somewhat. But even when he passed away, the the, the day he died, he was in his studio outside of Paris and he was painting the blue angel. So this obviously struck him greatly. And Picasso, who loved Chagall but couldn't figure him out because he was so original, He said, Chagall must have angels dancing around his brain. (laughs) (laughs) And so I actually wrote a couple of articles about Chagall. And when I came to Stony Brook, it was uh, 2014. So I'd been here for six years. I got an invitation to go back to Peconico Hills and actually give a responsive lecture on the spirituality of Mark Chagall. Mm. Gave a talk. And that night I came home, it was raining like cats and dogs, drove over the Throgs Neck Bridge. I get into my into our house and one of the advisors to my Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, uh, uh, Darae uh, Ahmad, who's from Pakistan, uh, she sent me an email and it said, the website has been completely taken down by T- Team DZ ISIS. <clears throat> so I went to the website and there was nothing but the ISIS flag. And And I thought about that and, you know why why did that happen and I couldn't quite figure it out I mean I had an international um, newsletter that went out so maybe it had caught some attention but I decided that we would have an international youth essay contest challenging young people all over the globe to write excess you know gut level essays about how they pushed back against peer pressure to hate other people just because they didn't share their beliefs we mm-hmm. got thousands of responses from all over the globe. It was incredible. And I had to put together a team of advisors to uh, assess these things. We did have a cash prize system. Um, and lo and behold, uh, in um, August of, 19, of 2016, uh, at World Youth Day at the UN, we filled the UN headquarters with young people who came from everywhere under the sun and they, perf- they were performing their essays. Some were doing it to rap music. Others were doing it to violin. Others were doing plays. It was incredible. And this was blasted out to 80 million young people around the world through the UN uh, system. And I thought, you know, that's, that's, you know, taking a, it's like a Jackson Pollock painting, you know. I mean, Jackson Pollock would take a glob of goo and throw it down on the middle of that canvas, and it looked like hell. But by the time he covered it up with enough beautiful lines and expanded it out, it was a thing of great beauty. Mm -hmm. So that's what you want to do in life. You want to take a moment like having your website taken down. And, and, you know, the the emails from Duray and from Ned Barrett, who was our webmaster in the book, just to explain this. And then also the, you know, the wonderful advertisement from the UN where suddenly the Institute for Research and Unlimited Love is sponsoring this World Youth Day. It was really great. Such a brilliant response. I mean, it's
0: just like it would be so easy to uh, create distance, create them, and make it about how could they do this. And instead, your choice was to create an essay that actually was initiated by this attack, literal, literal attack, a cyber attack, on your site for love and goodness. And
1: <laughs> I think no, it's I, at a, at a lot of my old friends from Cleveland came to New York, medical students from Stony Brook were there. I mean we really filled the place up. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And and all that only happened because our response to what's you know at face value, a very negative moment, actually turned out pretty well. It's sort of like leaving that car on Route 80. You know, it wasn't the most beautiful thing in the world. But we followed up with it and uh it was really wonderful.
0: I had a really good friend who died a few years ago. He it's been quite a few now, almost a decade, I guess. John O'Donohue, who was an Irish priest and wrote Anamkara, you probably know his work, but he he wrote a lot about beauty. You didn't say anything in your book about it, but I have a feeling that you have a lot to say about beauty. And you did have one quote in there. I think it was Rumi, let the beauty of what you love be what you do. As a spiritual interconnectedness there's something about beauty and aesthetics that to me has been a spiritual principle and i wonder about your thoughts about that well beauty
1: the way in which these m- uncanny moments of interaction occur set up i believe by a cherishing infinite mind if you think about it that infinite mind is pure unlimited love and and it loves us all So when all these hundreds of people are walking through Grand Central Station or wherever it might be, this incredibly mysterious force of connectivity is at work. And a lot of people, if you ask them, have you ever experienced God? They'll say, well, not necessarily directly, but I experienced God through this person at this time who was just the perfect person for what I needed in my in my, in my my difficult moment. Mm. So I think part of the beauty is just the unbelievable intricacy of the web of synchronicity. Some people call these God winks. I call them in the book God whispers. And I like Larry Dossi's idea that you have to be a noticer to pick up the beauty of this. Because most of us, you know, we're just rushing through the day, getting from point A to point B. We've all got our chronological schedules laid out in front of us, you know? Yeah. And you have, but you have to stop and you have to notice. And so, in the, you know, in the book, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I, I think we find this infinite mind when we go on a spiritual retreat. We get away from all the pressures and stresses in our life and we just focus in on inner being, uh, the source of these higher emotions of all the eternal values. That's one way of doing it. But the other way of doing it is just noticing just noticing. Um, I mean, that's what Route 80 is about. It's it's just the incredible things. I mean, the story when 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 Mitsuko, my wife and I, you know, we took the job at at, uh, at Fordham, and um, we had to rent a a, a, a a an apartment in in Tarrytown, New York, and it was extraordinarily expensive. I mean, prices in Michigan are nothing compared to New York. So I was basically plum out of cash, and uh, we were parked in front of the Howard Johnsons, for those who will remember this, across from the Tappan Zee Bridge. And Mitsuko and I, we, we said a prayer. We, we said, look, uh, Lord, we could really use a 100 bucks just to get us through the afternoon, get us through tomorrow, and then I'll get a paycheck and everything will be fine. And lo and behold, in the middle of this prayer, Mitsuko tapped me on the shoulder and she said, somebody touched the car. Somebody hit the car. I said, Mitsuko, I didn't feel anything. He said, yes, somebody did go out and look. So I went out, and, and, and there was this incredible guy who was about 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he was African-American. He had a big white suit on, uh, like he'd gone to a service of some kind, big hat. And he said, oh, don't worry about a thing. I'll, 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 I'll fix it. This is just an old car. It was It was a secondhand Datsun-centric, you know. So he said, take this $100. So he pulled out his wallet, and he put $100 in my hand. And that was it. And so we took our daughter into Howard Johnson. We had a great lunch, and we had enough money to sort of do some nice things that evening. And uh, the next day we were off to the races. So, so that was that was uh, you know. But to, you could notice that, and you could see the meaning of it and the beauty of it. But on the other hand, you know, if you really are a dyed in the wool materialist, and you you want to explain this thing, this these things in terms of uh, incredibly unlikely improbabilities you can do that but at a certain point just mathematically that becomes more of a stretch than just saying you know what there is a, a mind in this universe of love and it cares about us and mm-hmm. it makes these things happen sometimes in ways that can inspire us and help us to move forward and sort of be signposts on Route 80. So beautiful. Stephen Post, I love your book, God and
0: Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. We could talk for many more hours. There's much that I would love to talk about, particularly how we're changed when we extend active love. But all I can do is send active love to you and thank you. Deep gratitude from all of our listeners and from me for the amazing work you've done for a lifetime of amazing work bringing
1: more love into the world, which is so needed right now. Well, Michael, you too. Namaste. I mean, obviously you too, and the way you guided this discussion has been a, a beautiful thing, and I thank you for it. Couldn't be happier.
0: It's a pleasure. Much love to you, my friend.
1: Okay, you well.
0: Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.